hrgrapevine.com. It is the HR Grapevine podcast. Hello there, Eric Niewerowski. Thank you for listening today. This is the second installment of our special series called Workplace of Now, and that is in partnership with Zealous. Now, for those of you who don't know, Zealous are the UK and Ireland's leading provider of payroll and HR solutions. They have over 50 years of heritage and industry experience and have been ahead of the curve throughout. So in this second installment of the Workplace of Now, we're going to discuss empathy in HR leadership. And to help guide me on this journey, I'm going to be joined by Gethin Naden. He is the Chief Innovative Officer at Zealous. He is also an award-winning psychologist and a best-selling author dealing with all things employee well-being. So certainly the proper guide to help me unpack the ideas of how empathetic leaders in HR have employees with better well-being. So we're going to talk about ensuring that leaders are actively listening and acting on people's needs, the intersection of productivity, performance, and well-being, and the key metrics HR leaders are looking to gauge the well-being of their employees. So I had a great conversation with Gethin, and here it is. So I want to talk today about empathy. Empathy, Gethin, is one of my favorite topics. Before I tell you why, can you just quickly kind of give your take on what empathy is? So I think if you, when I've been talking to HR leaders about empathy, um, I think one of the best ways just to really understand empathy at work is to try and just really understand what it's like to be an employee in a situation. So if you look at good product managers and big companies like Apple have empathy as a design principle, they think about if somebody's got the iPhone in their hand, what's their experience like? Kind of, if I have to wait two seconds for an app to open, what does that feel like and how does that make me feel? And so I think from a HR perspective, what we're really doing is trying to effectively walk a mile in the shoes of the end employee. So if I am... going for an interview with you um how does that look like from the employee so are you making me wait at the door for five minutes longer than they should um empathizing with the fact that when you go and interview for a job that's a very nervous experience and so you know people might be leaving a job they hate or is not very good for their mental health so they might be not just excited about coming to work with you and the potential of working with you but also quite anxious about that big change And so if we interview that person and then don't tell them how they did and don't get back to them for weeks and weeks on end, is that being empathetic? It's probably not. So I think it's about how do we consider the employee that sits at the end of all these different things we do and empathize with them around, you know, is this benefit easy to understand? Was my pay delivered on time and is it accurate? Um, And understanding that if we don't really empathize with somebody, we, we run the risk of disengaging them very quickly. I think that's why empathy has become such a strong leadership trait is because we all want it and it's all very important to us in our modern lives. And, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it, but underpins an awful lot of well-being at work as well. Mm-hmm. Really, the reason why I really value and really like talking about empathy is exactly what you said was with the experience, right? I, I have a little background in UX design myself, and empathy is one of those key points, right? Um, so I just, I love talking about it. And one of the best descriptions around empathy I've ever heard was empathy is a muscle. You have to continue to work it out. And I, I, I take that with me. And as I try and progress within my career, 
aside from the technical skills, soft skills are ever more important to me. And empathy is really at the top of the list for me. So along with that, now we know what empathy is, why we both value it so much. With employee well-being at the top of the agenda at a lot of organizations, how can leaders ensure that they're listening to and acting on their employees' needs? So I think that's a really important point because I think when we think about well-being at work, a conversation I frequently have with people is what does it actually mean? And I think those waters have become quite muddied over over time. I think the the growing trend of well-being, uh, you know, the money has followed that. And what's happened is we've commodified an industry to the extent that, oh, you're struggling, your mental health has declined, buy this thing, do this thing, and we will solve that problem. So it's on a personal level for most of us, it's this idea of I'm really stressed at work, work's been really busy, I've got two weeks off, I'm going to now pay to sit on a beach for two weeks to recuperate from the really busy time I've had at work. Right. Um, and that's not what well-being should be. Well-being shouldn't be a, a reaction to or sticking plaster to somebody that's already suffered. Um, but the the point in your question there, which is really important, I think, is that is that listening. When you look at what makes us happy, what psychologists call subjective well-being, um, a lot of that inside and outside of work is, do I have a voice? Do I feel like I'm being listened to? Does my contribution count? And so I think, you know, well-being in many ways does start with listening to what people need. And I think if you then cross that kind of with, with empathy, that kind of understanding the route that many of our people are taking through the business, we have to empathize with those people to get well-being right. And so, you know, what does my experience look like at work if I'm a black employee, or what does my experience look like if I'm a gay employee? And so you start to have to empathize different because you start to understand that actually some of those people have got different well-being challenges. Right. If you're a single parent, you're going to have different well-being challenges to somebody who might be single and living on their own. And so I think the diversity of people that we employ um, is so ever-changing and so diverse, and their well-being needs are so diverse that we have no option but to listen to what people have got to say and ask them what they need to, to survive at work. And I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast now, if we were to ask them, what do you need today to ensure your well-being kind of tip-top condition exactly where it needs to be, you'd get hundreds of thousands of different answers. Right. Um, and so I think you know, well-being has to begin with, with, with asking those questions um, and listening to what people say. But there's almost a step before that, which is, how do I, how have I created an environment whereby somebody's going to tell me their truth? Because if we can't, if we don't create a trusting environment, nobody's going to tell me their truth. And I think the reason why we've had such a stigma around things like mental health is because people have been afraid to tell the truth at work. People have been right. afraid to go into work and say, I'm really worried about debt, or I'm really worried about my wife or my kids right. are experiencing this. And so You've got to create that trusting environment, then ask the questions and then act to that, I, th I think, is the order in which those things need to, to happen. In your sort of expert opinion, has the pandemic and all of us, majority of us working from home, has it been easier, do you think, to create the safe space that you're talking about where you can genuinely gauge an employee how they're feeling as opposed to, you know, say, like an office environment? Um, yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it has a little bit because I think that, that one of the common themes of the pandemic was we we all experienced and demonstrated more humanity than we've probably seen in most of our lives. And so yeah. if you look at 
um, you know, in the UK, sense of community has been falling since about 2011. So people haven't felt like they belong to a community. Mm-hmm. The pandemic hit and all of a sudden, my elderly parents were telling me that neighbours they'd never met were knocking on their door and saying, if you need some shopping, we'll go out and get some stuff for right. you. You had kids putting rainbows in their windows and we all clapped on our doorsteps. So we all felt like we were part of a community than most of us, I think, have ever felt in our lives. And I think that happened in the workplace too. We all started to feel like we were part of something. Um, so I think the pandemic has certainly had an impact on bringing people together in a way that perhaps they hadn't at work before. Um, but I also think because we were all experiencing this trauma at the same time, and we were all experiencing the way that it was having a, a physical, financial, and emotional effect, we knocked down a few of those barriers to talking about it. So it seemed a little bit more normalized to talk about mental health because everyone was experiencing, or most people were experiencing poor mental health. In the UK alone, I think by the time the second lockdown had finished, about 20 to 25% of people say they'd experienced poor mental health for the first time in their life. So all of a sudden, en masse, we were like, actually, this is more easier to talk about because more people were either talking about it or experiencing it. And so I think, you know, we can glibly make a joke of it only took a pandemic for employers to take employee well-being seriously. But the reality is, for the first time ever, more of us experienced this stuff openly at once and couldn't really hide from it, which allowed us to break down that stigma and talk about it a little bit more. Um, and I think also we 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 physically brought home into, and, and worked together. You know, they'd been merging for quite a long time, but, you know, people are having video calls with their kids running around in the background and we're seeing each other's living rooms and bedrooms expected. And so I think that all helped as well because people were working in an environment that in many ways was comfortable because it was home and it was a safe, physically a safe space for lots of people, not everyone, but for most people. Um, and we had managers acting in a way that they always should have. So in this country, in the UK, we started to see during the first lockdown that employee engagement scores increased in two thirds of British companies. Wow. Because managers checked in more and CEOs got on video calls and said, we care about you and we're doing this and we're being more transparent and I'm talking to you more. And so we did all the things that boost employee engagement in the first place, but we did them more regularly. Um, and then as we got used to lockdowns and we got used to the pandemic, uh, the data tells us that actually by the time the third lockdown came, people were 25 less likely to say they felt supported at work. So it became a little bit normalized quite quickly. Um, but I definitely think that the conditions of the pandemic did allow people to open up more about their kind of health health challenges, perhaps more than ever, and normalize that a little bit more in the workplace. All right. So well-being, all of that is great, right? And HR needs to pay attention to that. But they also have to make sure that their employees are being productive. They are, you know, achieving performance, hitting all of their KPIs. So how does this, these concepts of well-being, productivity, and performance all interact with each other? So many, many years ago, I visited and pitched to a very well-known British football club. And as part of that meeting, they um, took me around the stadium and told me a few things that kind of went on uh, on match day, et cetera. And they just Uh kind of a big investment. I'm not a big football fan, so I'll probably get these terms wrong. But they were telling me about the nutritionists that work for the team. So you have a team of people who are creating meals and meal plans because they realized that actually performance was enhanced when things like well-being were taken care of um, Mm -hmm. at work. 
but they were also showing me how you know the physiotherapists that were available and um, the doctors and all this kind of team that sat around the uh the, the main football team that were all there because they realized if we pull all these different levers of kind of sleep and good mental health and food we did all these things right our team were far more likely to score goals and we were far more likely to proceed as a football club mm-hmm. and that was my first real inkling is to actually so why don't why don't we do that in the workplace so you see the same with so for major football matches and we saw this um, last year with the england football team they were like sent off to a country house hotel they were all messing around in the swimming pool and there's you know, some well-known pictures now of some football stars like floating around on big inflatable unicorns in the swim pool of this um, country house hotel. Right. Because again, they realize these people are going to experience a lot of stress and pressure the next day. We need to get them in the best position possible so that they can perform in a really enhanced way. Mm-hmm. And we don't think about people at work that way. I have never heard of somebody say to a salesperson, you've got that really big pitch tomorrow, go home, take the afternoon off, do what you need to do to get into the right headspace so that you will perform your best tomorrow. Yeah. No different to kind of rock and pop stars who have riders. They have a list of things that they need. And, you know, I want a quiet room and I want a diffuser and I want opera playing because that's all the stuff that gets me into the right mindset so that I will perform best when I get on stage. And so when we talk about well-being at work, that's exactly what we're doing. What we're doing is trying to find out, Eric, what do you need to be able to perform the best you possibly can tomorrow, finding out what that is and where possible delivering that, because that's the relationship between well-being and productivity is creating the environment for people to thrive and deliver their best. And there's this great quote um, that I heard you many years ago, which was nobody comes up with a great idea being chased by a lion. Mm. When you're worried about money, when you're worried about relationships, when you're worried about your mental health, all these things that happen to every single one of us in our lives at some point, when those things are affecting our lives and affecting our mood and our health, we can't give our best at work. And so that's why well-being has arguably fairly or unfairly fallen on the on the shoulders of employers to deal with, because for years and years, we've decided we wanted to merge home and work life. Right. Uh, we did that before the pandemic. And now people are surprisingly bringing home into work. So if that's affecting their performance, these are things we have to deal with. And so that's why, you know, for the 10 years or so, I've been talking about well-being at work. When I first started talking about it, I was told a lot by employers, we don't want to get involved in people's lives outside of work. They didn't want to be, it was seen as being too paternalistic to be kind of advising employees on how to save money or get better sleep or have more physical exercise. But now we've kind of gone past that point. And I think what was really interesting during the pandemic is the, the day the UK locked down, the day Boris Johnson announced the UK was locking down, I had about seven or eight phone calls from customers I work with basically saying, that well-being thing you were going to talk to us about, yeah, we need to do that now. We're ready, right. Um, and, it, and it feels like whilst lots of employees were kind of clambering around trying to find the fire extinguisher and reading the instructions, those that had made a prior commitment to well-being weathered the storm of the pandemic better because they had all the things in place that would support their people during the pandemic. We've got to understand that well-being isn't just doing the right thing. It certainly is a lot of that, but it's about how do we create more successful organizations by taking better care of people so that they're in a better position to deliver the great customer service. 
I did a talk um, at a conference, did a keynote talk many years ago. And one of the things I was talking about then, and I was quoted in a newspaper by saying it, but you think about the happiest place on earth, which is apparently officially Disney World in Florida, happiest place on earth. And people spend thousands of pounds and thousands of dollars to go on a family trip there, once in a lifetime trip. And all the staff members, the cast members, as they call them, whatever troubles they've got in life, they have to leave at the door. Because as I said to this paper at the time, nobody wants to go to Disneyland and meet a pissed off Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so that's what no. our, But that's what our employees are doing every day, right? We've got people yeah. at home now who are struggling with the cost of living increases, who have zero disposable income every month. And we're expecting them to stand in front of our customers and smile and act like life outside of work is not affecting them. And it's just unrealistic. Yeah. So to be able to deliver the best customer service, to make sure people collaborate more, for us to sell more products, um, for us to make sure that customer loyalty is where it needs to be, for people to create and invent better products and innovate for us, we have to make sure they're in the best shape possible. And so that's all that well-being really is, is about us taking better care of people so that they can perform their best at work. Right. Uh, you know, when you shouted out that rhetorical question to me of like, what do I need? I kind of froze up a bit because I've never been asked that. So I'm wondering how uh, how can HR kind of help employees feel safe to answer that question in an honest way? It's just a very jarring question. And I'm wondering even if HR teams made the investment and had the proper training and and to ask that question, how do you really get that? 100% authentic response from the employee. Yeah, it's a really good point. There's um there's something in psychology, behavioral psychology called uh, libertarian paternalism. And that is this idea that in many cases, some of us might know what employees need to be doing, but they don't. And I think, you know, the complexities of stuff behind mental health means, you know, the reasons why somebody has poor mental health can be very vast and, and, and ever-changing, as I mentioned before. And so asking people what they need is not necessarily a really simple question because they might not know what they need. Um, but I think as HR people become more familiar with the evidence and spend time listening to podcasts like this and going to conferences and reading blogs and articles, they are ballooning their knowledge. And some of this stuff might sound really basic, but is not known by the average person. And so I think there's an opportunity for HR leaders to guide people more to the solutions that they need to see. So um, you know, you think about managers and empathizing, part of that is you might be able to understand that somebody's on their way to struggling before they actually really struggle. Because mm -hmm. I think lots of mental health is, um, I, I, I was on a podcast years ago, and I never I didn't think of this phrase before I said it. But they always say about thirst, when you actually feel thirsty, you're already dehydrated. So by the time your body feels physically thirsty, you're well on your way to being dehydrated. And I think our own poor mental health acts in the same way. By the time we really feel it, by the time it's disrupting our sleep, we've already been living with it for quite a long time, that anxiety or whatever it might be. Yeah. So I think sometimes managers are in a really good position to just look at somebody and say, you might think you're coping, but I think you've been doing too much this week. I think you've got too much on your plate. And I'm going to proactively take some of that away from you or help you deal with that. And I think that's where the real magic happens at well-being at work when you have a leadership team that are empowered to really look after their team in that way and identify that, no, no, you need some time off and I need to encourage you to take some time off because we all want to impress. We all want to work hard. We all want to get recognized for a job well done. And so 
I think sometimes it's far easier for somebody else to notice we need to take a break than it is for us to. So um, I think sometimes that libertarian paternalism needs to kick in, which is basically this idea of there's a decision I need you to make and I'm going to point you towards it, but ultimately you can still make that decision. Yeah. And for those listening, you can't, you can't see this, but I'm nodding furiously in agreement <laughs> with Gethin there. Cause just going back to my own history, having just a, just an awful start to the year, had to take some time off. And when I came back, having the leadership come to me and say, you came back to work too soon. Um, really made me feel just exactly like you said, like they noticed it really before I could. And, um, and to be supportive, it, it, you know, it really meant a lot. And it's certainly making me stay uh, and, and engaged with, with my, um, with my job. So I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. And I've, I've had the same. So I've, um, I, I am very engaged in my job, I, it's like a vocation for me. I, a lot of my time spent outside of work is reading and researching about the things to do with wellbeing, employee experience. And so I run the risk of burnout through over-engagement quite regularly. So I need somebody to literally pull the reins. So my CEO will very, very regularly kind of say, are you doing too much? I mm-hmm. think you need to take a step back. Um, and so it happens on the opposite side as well. You know, people run the risk. And I don't think we talk enough about over-engagement. And I think when we talk about burnout during the pandemic, some of that is related to the fact that because I'm not physically seen in my workplace in the way that I used to, I'm now in this situation where actually maybe I am overcompensating and I'm working a little bit too hard to try and compensate for that kind of uh, physical distance between me and my place of work. And so I think that's been a feature of burnout as well is through people putting in too much effort because they're trying too hard. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, let's wrap up this first episode we have you on, on the workplace of now. Around well-being, what are some metrics that HR leaders can be looking at? So we are, I think, within HR, obsessed with measuring things. Um, right. We, we love we love a data point. Um, I, for a long time, people have believed that kind of HR has now become people analytics. And um, we get lots of points of data now. And I think, first of all, lots of data doesn't mean anything unless we interpret that data. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you look at historical measures of well-being at work, we were looking at stuff like what's my absent rate? What's my turnover rate? Kind of um, looking at that kind of attendance type stuff. Um, and when you really start to delve into some of that data, I'm not entirely sure what it really tells you. There was some research, I think, done by the CIPD years ago that looked at asking people if they've ever phoned in sick because of a mental health problem, but what reason did they give? And something like 99% of people said they phoned in with a mental health problem, but just pretended they had the flu or a bad stomach mm-hmm. stigma, and they didn't want to have a conversation about mental health. So, um, so that starts to tell you that actually... What do those absence rates really tell you? And then you start to look at the fact that I know personally people that have phoned in sick because they just can't stand their manager and want to limit as much time as possible around them. So again, you never really, that data doesn't really give you the real story in many cases. Mm-hmm. So I think those kind of objective measures of well-being have started to give way to subjective measures, which I think are far more compelling. And back to our first point, that is we are asking people and so when I do well-being workshops uh, with, um, with Zadis Group customers, and I've done about 100, 150 of those over the last two years, the first question I always ask the customers that I work with is, if I stopped one of your employees on the street and I tapped them on the shoulder and said, does your employer care about you? 
what would their answer be to that question? Mm-hmm. I think if you start to think about asking those types of questions, how you get to a positive answer doesn't really matter. If your employees are saying, yeah, I, I, my boss cares about me, my company cares about me. And if I went through a divorce, if my parents died, would they be there for me? And would they do the right thing? And could I trust them to take care of my well-being? If the answers to those questions are yes, then keep doing what you're doing. Um, so I think sometimes this data can give us some interesting points of things to develop and stuff. But fundamentally, I don't think there is any better way of finding out how are you helping the individual employee than asking them, are we doing the right things by you? What else do you need? So back to our first point, you know, you need to create this culture of trust for those answers to be given. But I think that's far more compelling. And the customers that I work with and the employers that I've read about that do that really well uh, are well on their way to success um, rather than focusing on some of those metrics that historically might have told us something, but I just don't think are relevant anymore. So on that note, Gethin, Nadine, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Workplace of Now. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, once again, I'd just like to thank Gethin Naden. He is a best-selling author, a psychologist, and the chief innovation officer at Zealous for helping me to unpack the idea of empathy in HR leadership and really kind of getting deep with me on the concept of well-being and all the different facets that it contains. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you to our partners at Zealous. And we will hear from Gethin again in a later episode on The Workplace of Now, where we define what a healthy workplace consists of. So until then, have a great day.